From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Millennials are now the dominant generation covered in healthcare plans. Today, we'll look at a new study that shows a surprising trend. Over half of our millennials now have a chronic disease or are developing a chronic disease. So the young and invincible mantra is gone. And now we have a population that really is now going to start to actively engage uh, the healthcare system. We'll learn about a partnership between the community organization Black Space, which offers therapy for black and brown people, and the Milwaukee Art Museum. Plus, we'll meet the new Wisconsin Poet Laureate. The real value of poems exists in the way that they require us to relate to culture differently, that they, they force us to spend time and participate in what the poem eventually means. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Although they only range in age from 27 to 42 years old, millennials are experiencing chronic health conditions at a significant rate. A new study from the Health Action Council shows that millennials exceed older generations in chronic conditions, making them more dependent on the healthcare system compared to other age groups. Medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, back disorders, and particularly behavioral health disorders in the millennial population contribute to a higher burden on the healthcare system. Patty Starr and Craig Kurzweil co-authored an article that explains this shift and solutions to address it. They join me to share more of the findings, and Kurzweil begins by explaining the key factors that contribute to millennials using the healthcare system at a higher rate. What we see within the millennial population is not necessarily that there's a higher prevalence of those types of chronic disease conditions, but it's more around uh, with the millennials and their families, how they utilize care. So as they start to um, enter into their 40s, and we see that the millennials are getting uh, everything that comes with turning 40, hypertension, diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that within the millennial generation, the fact that they typically access the healthcare system through kind of quick care. So using the ER, urgent care, and virtual care, instead of using a brick and mortar sort of PCP quarterback model, um, has led to many of those chronic diseases costing much more uh, within the millennial population. So treating your diabetes, for example, through an emergency room is a really expensive way to treat a chronic disease. We're also doing a comparison between employer policies over the last 30 years or 40 years now, and some of the impact that it has on this generation, whether it was an employer changing their sick time or their PTO schedule or their vacation schedules. We went through a transition when the millennial generation was actually being brought up and their parents actually had to change their behavior and how their kids received care and how fast their kids received care from the healthcare system in order for daycare to kick in or for them to go back to school. And we're actually starting to see in this population how some of those changes, although positive for the employer on the short-term basis, may negatively impact the employer now through different usage patterns. And those patterns are now being passed down to the next generation, which are the children of the millennials. I'm not sure if anyone's heard stories of millennials when their kids get are not feeling well. They are going, well, the doctor's on your phone. Just call the doctor on your phone because 
they're used to virtual care now and they're going, well, we can just go to the doctor. So there's a different level of access and availability thought of in this population and therefore they're utilizing it differently as well. Some both positive and some negative. It's often the subject matter of many memes out there that millennials are casually living through multiple waves of, you know, unprecedented times, right? But all jokes aside, this does have an impact on our health, both physical and mental. So where do you see this reflected in the data of what areas of health millennials are most utilizing or seeking care for? Well, definitely, if you look through the data on the millennial population, the one area that is very different from past generations is behavioral health itself. So some of that is obviously impacted by the pandemic and lockdowns and all the stress over the last few years is definitely important uh, to think about. But I would also say, in general, the millennial population had high prevalence of behavioral health issues before COVID. And really, it's more uh, an indication of more millennials and, and the millennials starting to dominate the workforce has led to behavioral health being more more popular. And not that other generations aren't struggling with behavioral health issues, but the millennial generation is really the first that's coming through with which is a completely different degree of stigma attached to behavioral health concerns. So not that the not that the issue wasn't there within that generation, but they're much more willing uh, to be treated for those types of conditions. You mentioned behavioral health utilization is up to 35% for millennials and their children. So let's get into some of the other dominant health conditions that millennials are experiencing that you found in this study. Yeah, so again, analytically, as you look at the millennial population, uh, typically when you think about, when I think about millennials, you think young, healthy, invincible populations. But uh, to be clear, um, we blinked during the pandemic and that has completely changed. Uh, The millennials are turning 40, they are 40, and getting, again, everything that comes with turning 40 with high blood pressure and diabetes and things like that. So um, conditions that we hadn't talked about within that generation are now becoming much, much more popular. Now, chronic disease. Over half of our millennials now have a chronic disease or are developing a chronic disease. So the young and invincible mantra is, is gone. And now we have a population that really is now going to start to actively engage uh, the healthcare system. And the real challenge is how do they engage the healthcare system? Now that they have chronic disease, it, it's no longer okay to leverage you know, the ER and things like that to treat your conditions. We truly need to manage the chronic disease. And that means becoming compliant and engaged and part of the healthcare journey. And typically we do that through a PCP. If we, if they are going to access the healthcare system through virtual care, we just need to make sure that virtual care moves from just treating cough and cold and things like that to how do you help this generation treat their chronic disease? That's going to be a big challenge. Yeah, things like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, back disorders, osteoarthritis, these are just some of the things that have a high percentage prevalence in the study. And as you mentioned, it reflects how they utilize the care and what the priorities of care are for the millennials. But the study also examines how these trends impact health spending, not just on the individual level, but employers. So, Patty, what do you see as some key solutions to better serve this population? So from an employer perspective, I really believe that we need to continue to manage those individuals that are of high risk. But I also think we need to move our line of sight up in the continuum and really look at those individuals who are healthy or just developing some light medical risk and help them maintain where they're at, their health. It's really important that employers implement and promote disease prevention and lifestyle modification programs 
in addition to that, I think it's very important that employers help educate employees on where to obtain health care, that it's not always the quickest place you want to go. Maybe you actually want a healthcare relationship instead of being transient with your healthcare, but making sure you have a relationship and you know, based on the symptoms you're experiencing, where an appropriate place to go is. Along with that, beyond teaching our employees what to do, but helping support them and making really good family decisions around healthcare. What's good for a spouse or a significant other? What's good for the children that they're around? So that those individuals start to adopt good behaviors around the healthcare system as well. One aspect I see in this study is that maybe millennials are motivated to challenge the way the current healthcare system works. You know, we can't expect the systems that were best utilized by, say, baby boomers or Gen X populations to fit the different needs of the population that are today. So, how can the results of this report and continuing to build upon this data? potentially help shape any system changes to help lessen the cost burden for everybody. Yeah, and I I think that's a key piece to think about. It's not just understanding that there's some barriers and some challenges within the generation. It's what do we learn from that? And and a lot of what happened during the pandemic has really put us in 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 actually a a better spot within the millennial generation. So the rapid advancement of telehealth and virtual care was critical. That hadn't happened we'd be really in even in a more challenging position uh, to meet the needs of millennials. And it's, it's less around understanding the barriers, but, under, but more about how do we meet these members where they're at? This is how they use care. This is how they've been trained to use care. This is what they're accustomed to. Um, and now that they are the dominant workforce, how do we adjust? How does everyone adjust to meet the unique needs of this population and guide them towards better health and, and lower full cost of care? I would also say that it's a great opportunity for the system to look at the experience it provides to the end consumer, that millennials are used to a first class level of experience, whether they're looking at Amazon or some of the other types of services that they traditionally buy at grocery stores, and how does healthcare mimic and or learn from some of those other industries on the delivery of care to provide that level of experience. Both of you come at this study with different perspectives. I'm just curious, what were your main takeaways individually or a stat that most stood out to you? I I can speak to the data. When you look at what's happening in the millennial population, two things kind of jumped out. One is that uh, we don't typically think of chronic disease in that population. So seeing that overtaking that population was really interesting. And the cost of those chronic diseases was unexpected um, and again, driven by where people are utilizing care. The other piece, uh, and Patty kind of mentioned this earlier, the ripple effect that this uh, utilization pattern has in their kids, that it's not just a study of just the millennials, but the millennials and the ripple effect within their children is it's interesting how that learned behavior kind of moves from generation to generation along the continuum as well. So this isn't gonna be a, a one hit wonder where we where it's just the millennials, but it's going to be a longer term issue as their, their kids start to enter the health, healthcare system as well. I mean, ditto what Craig shared. I think we were both surprised at the amount of disease state that was entering earlier in someone's life expectancy coming in at that 30s and 40s and to also see that mirrored into their children, I think was significantly eye-opening. From an employer's perspective, it 
gives insight into our future workforces and our current workforces and some of the things we might have to start, start adjusting and modifying for earlier than what we've done in the past. Because we're used to a workforce that gets sicker, usually in their 50s. And now all of a sudden they're getting ill earlier in their 40s. So that has a long-term impact on the business model that from an employer's perspective, we have to evaluate. I think from an employer's perspective also though, it's a great opportunity for us to take a step back and actually look at policies and decisions we're making today and go, what are we trying to accomplish today? And how can we actually model out what the impact will be in 20 or 30 years on the next generation of employees that we're gonna be hiring? Because what may seem really positive today and resolving maybe a problem we're having in our processes may actually cause further healthcare burdens in the future, which we definitely don't wanna do. If anything, we wanna try to eliminate burdens from the healthcare system starting today, but make decisions that will continue that impact on a long-term basis. Well, Patty and Craig, thank you both so much for joining me today to break down some of this data. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for your time. Patty Starr is the president and CEO of the Health Action Council, and Craig Kurzweil is the vice president of the United Healthcare Center for Advanced Analytics. You can find a link to the study, Millennials and Their Children, Significant Health Findings, at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Wisconsin has a new Poet Laureate. We'll meet him and hear some of his poetry in about 20 minutes. But first, we'll tell you about therapy being offered at the Milwaukee Art Museum. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The community organization Black Space and the Milwaukee Art Museum are partnering to provide free and accessible therapy tailored to black and brown people in the Milwaukee area. Black Space provides free group therapeutic experiences for black and brown people in an effort to destigmatize mental wellness. And offering these experiences in beautiful and safe spaces is paramount to the organization's mission. One of those spaces is the Milwaukee Art Museum. WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell spoke with Dr. Leah Knox of Black Space and Dr. Cantera Souffrant at the Milwaukee Art Museum about their collaboration. Souffrant starts the conversation with why the Milwaukee Art Museum partnered with Black Space. 
The University of Pennsylvania published a study a few years ago showed that going to a museum can help reduce anxiety and depression. And they actually studied people who went to visit a museum, and just 20 minutes in a museum can help to lower the stress hormone cortisol back to a level that would normally take hours, like if you're just out in the world decompressing. So for me, that science sort of spoke to what I already knew in my gut, (laughs) that the museum can be a space for resetting on a day when I am like peak anxiety. I go in and I find the work of art that like just resonates for me, right? Or on a day when I'm already happy, I go and I sit by the lake in this beautiful space and I look at works of art and it just reminds me of how beautiful and how much potential there is in the world already. Um, So for me, that science and what I knew in my gut and what visitors have already said, I think that relationship with black space just extended that work a little bit more and also extended it again to black and brown folks who I'm always thinking about in Milwaukee and thinking about what are the spaces that can be our refuges and the spaces that we can come to and feel held when we are excited and happy and joyful, but also on the days when we maybe need a little bit more comfort and touch and lightness. And I think all of that is tied to, again, the building itself, that white Santiago Calatrava building, which is about 20 years old, is the biggest work of art in our collection. And I can also see it being a space that can be really intimidating for individuals, especially individuals who are raised in a white supremacist society that says that they're not deserving of beautiful things and not deserving of other ways of being in the world. And so for me, the Black Space Sessions are also a way of making that access abundantly clear for individuals, right? You come through the door for Black Space and you're going to get an experience with art and you're also going to get therapy and you're also going to get an invitation back to the museum because it is fundamentally your space. So what do both of your organizations get out of this partnership? Uh, Dr. Knox, I'll have you answer that first. Black Space gets a place where Black and brown people feel valued. We are worth it and deserving, too. Many times when a organization, an organization like Black Space, um, is welcomed into a space and, oh, yeah, sure, you can have your groups here. It can be at the bottom of a church after fellowship hall, um, after uh, everything is cooked and now we're here as a leftover. Or perhaps at the community center after 12 Games of Hustle. Oh, yeah, sure, after we're all done, come on and use our community center hall room. An afterthought. But with the Milwaukee Art Museum, we are at the forefront. This is your space, too. It's inclusion. We are held and honored up high as well. We deserve this space, too. It is ours, not just and afterthought. So I believe that the people who attend the group are treated just as well as our white counterparts. We deserve penthouse suites. We deserve beauty. And so it is spoken out loud instead of having to be begged for. So once those doors are open, that red carpet is open as well for us. It makes you feel good. I know that When we run the groups, I am always dressed to the nines because when you see me, 
You deserve that I am dressed for you. Oh, no, I did this for you. Come on in because you are well deserving of someone who is dressed for you because I want to make sure that you know that you deserve this. The artwork and the art pieces, the food that is laid out particularly and neatly and plated just for you, my black and brown people, because you deserve it. That is what this collaboration is about. You're worth it. And so now you're smiling and your chest is stuck out and your shoulders are back and you feel as though, yes, I am worth it. I, I feel I feel regal. I feel royal too. And I feel as though I belong here because you do. So I would say that like one of the gifts that this partnership allows for the art museum is we get to find even more ways of making art relevant to our community. Um, we get to practice expansive hospitality and really making the museum a home for all people. I think that we get to grow our audience and grow our audience through repeated engagements, right? Not just for a one-off program or an exhibition, but mm -hmm. for repeated visits. I think we also... And I think that I shy away from like what we get out of it because I think that in the past the museum has often um, people have been really critical of us having a transactional relationship mm -hmm. and reaching out to communities, especially community of color, only if we have like a, a person of color who's got an exhibition. Right. And that's like a come in 16 weeks. You're going to feel like a star. And then after that time, I'll have blip to do with you. Right. <laughs> uh, and so for me, what we get from the Black Space Partnership is really practicing and learning how to be a good neighbor and how to be a good partner. I feel like there are many moments where like Corey or Dr. Knox or Darius say, hey, Kintara, can you maybe do this differently? Right. And so I'm learning. And then I also say, hey, can we do diff this differently? So it's really an opportunity to practice what partnership looks like. And for us to like do that again and again and again, not just with Black Space, but with other organizations and people that we work with, too. How about the people that you're serving? What do they get from this collaboration? So they're going to get confidentiality. So the sessions happen at a time when the museum is closed to the public mm. so that folks know, like, this is just for you. So you will get that privacy, which also includes complimentary parking that evening so that there's no barrier to you coming. Um, because we're closed, that means that you're going to be greeted by maybe two of our security guards who will walk you through this space, right? Because, again, close to the public, they're not there necessarily to police. And we have the conversation before coming, like, Black Space Needs Therapy, give them a wide, like, group of space. Mm -hmm. And they will also get a bit of an opportunity to do some art viewing, right? So again, sort of demystify an art museum because I fundamental <laughs> for me is for folks to realize you have everything that you need to enjoy a work of art, even if that means you going, I don't get it, right? Mm -hmm. That is not, that is not uh, a reflection of you or your intellect or your capacities, period. And then they will also get... Uh, family passes to come back to the museum for free with two adults and up to four children, 17 and under. And for me, those family passes are really a gift to like come back and enjoy this space mm -hmm. because, again, it is your art museum. It is our city's art museum and beyond. So that is one of the things that I think we try to offer is that, again, that hospitality mm -hmm. and that invitation to return again and again and again. So since 2020, um, it has grown, Black Space has grown so much. Um, however, the people that 
attend. They've also grown so much. Um, we have new members, every single group for each group, um, for the black and brown men, black and brown women, and black and brown LGBTQIA plus um, community members. They continue to get a warm uh, space filled with love, filled with nurturing, uh, filled with empathy, uh, filled with community and interconnectedness. Um, we have members that continue to come back every time and they are welcomed every time some people say well can we come back again we're like yes mm -hmm. they have even built community within mm -hmm. their own groups so they'll meet and say well can we exchange social media um can we exchange phone numbers and they've also realized that you know what okay th this is okay uh we like the feel um if this is how therapy can be We'll take you up on the offer of the list of the resources and the black and brown therapists that, you know, are on this list. And some have even um, started to attend individual therapy mm -hmm. sessions as well as some of the resources on the list. Um, many of the people who attend are loving the space, mm -hmm. even just the proximity Um the logistics. Like, how do we even get downtown mm -hmm. to the art museum? knowing that there's free parking or that we will get you down there. If you need a ride, it's going to happen. We will make it happen. Going into the doors and the large eyes and looking around like, do I belong here? Is anyone going to say something to me? Is anyone going to follow me because I am a person of color? It, am I going to be feeling uncomfortable? But instead, hey, how you doing? Are you a black space? Come on in with a welcome smile. Even having... Um, security guards of color, mm -hmm. not seeing that, but seeing it now, yeah. uh, seeing the artwork, the Haitian exhibit and other artists of color and looking at it and being able to say, wow, being able to interact with that art and press those buttons and hear different languages. Um, so are they feeling comfy at the art museum? I believe so. Uh, knowing that they can even talk to each other and say, you've been here before? How was it? Me hearing the whispers. That confidentiality is very, very important. What goes on in the group stays in the group. Tissue boxes are there. Most times they're empty. So having that ability to be vulnerable, feel vulnerable, and having that respected and honored is what they get from these groups. Um, being in a space that is beautiful, but also the beauty of knowing that mental wellness is something that can look happy and joyous or can look messy and ugly at that moment. But at the end, a relief and a sigh of, whew, that was a hard one. But you've been to this too? You've been to this too? You too? I am not alone. Mm -hmm. We are not alone. And being able to hug it out after or to just hold hands or to say, you know what? I was so anxious and nervous when I got here, but I'm okay now. Still nervous, but I'm good. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And then being able to come back again. So I think that this space is wonderful for it all. And not to feel a way that I can't do this here, but this is also a safe space to do it. As beautiful as the art museum is, it holds space for it all. What would you both say is still needed to address the mental health of black and brown people in Milwaukee? Black and brown therapists. Um, right now we have less than 4% African-American therapists, 2% prescribers, black and brown. 
we have less than 4% Latinx therapists. That's in the United States, as well as in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Black and brown therapists need to be paid more. They are the lowest paid and the highest scheduled. So their schedules are hardly available for new patients. We also need accessibility. Also, on insurance panels, there needs to be an easier way to find black and brown therapists. Financially, when it comes to insurance, the co-pays are extremely high. So it is seen as a luxury for black and brown people, when in fact it is just as a necessity for a medical doctor as a therapist. Stigma, the stigma is so high. As soon as you ask a person, you know what? You know, are you okay? Is something going on with you mentally? No, I'm not crazy. I'm fine. When in fact, we tend to make sure that mental wellness, when you say wellness, wellness is something that is deserving. It is something that you want. You want to grab your wellness. How can we make sure that you are well and continue to do so? When it comes to black and brown communities, the shame and guilt that comes along with mental health is huge. Sweeping things under the rug within our black and brown communities has been done since the beginning of time. We have to start talking about these things. I think there might be people who question, like, why a BIPOC-centered, like, group therapy experience needs to exist Mm -hmm. in the first place. I don't even know how to enter this without sharing my own personal stories. But if we think about black and brown folks in our city truly being healed, right, and having access to black therapists, really, which is really about addressing structural inequities, right, Mm -hmm. in health and mental wellness and economics and, like, where we live. If we're talking about that and really boosting black and brown peoples in Milwaukee, the whole of Milwaukee is going to be boosted Mm -hmm. because we're going to see benefits to our total health care system, to, like, where black and brown folks live and where everyone lives. We're going to see boosts to our economics. Like, all of that is intertwined, and I feel like that's Mm -hmm. the model that black space operates within, and I feel like that's really the model that's needed is this shared moving together as a people. And I think that's why spaces like Black Space exist. And as someone who's had therapists who did not look like me, it makes the hurdle of becoming well that much harder because then I got to articulate why, what a microaggression is. Mm -hmm. Or I got to articulate, like, this is how racism plays out in every aspect of my life, right? And then I have to, like, fight to be seen. And that, I think, is one hurdle that Black Space helps to eliminate in the space that creates. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. Um, statistically, 50% of black and brown people who even start individual therapy, especially with a white therapist, will stop going at intake because they have to explain what it means to be Mm -hmm. black or brown. What is a microaggression? Well, why did your mother talk with you like that? Oh, my God, that's that's terrible. When, in fact, I didn't I never considered that terrible. That's just a part of who I am Mm -hmm. culturally and my family. And that's what helped me to become better. Um, As far as interconnectedness, that has been part of people of colors culture forever and ever since Mm -hmm. the beginning of time. If I look at you and you look at me, I am not responsible for you. That is how it goes. So if we're in a room together and I see you and you see me and we're the only two, we already know Mm -hmm. what it is. 
when we share our stories, because we're griots naturally, how we heal, how we help, how we're there for each other, and that's therapeutic. Dr. Leah Knox is the co-founder of Black Space. Dr. Kentara Safrant is the curator of community dialogue at the Milwaukee Art Museum. They both spoke with WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell. You can learn more about what Black Space offers at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break and then hear poetry from Wisconsin's new poet laureate and learn what inspires his work. That's after the break on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin has a new poet laureate. His name is Nicholas Gulick. He has authored three poetry books and is currently an associate professor at UW-Whitewater. As the state poet laureate, Gulick will play a crucial role in keeping poetry and creativity accessible to all ages. Gulick chats with Like Effect's Mallory Chang about his work and career path. Just to bring it back to the beginning, Nicholas, why did you get into poetry? How did you get into it? So I answer that. There's a few different ways that I answer that question. Um, I feel like there's a lot of starting points in that narrative. One starting point, it has to do with the fact that I grew up listening to poems. My dad, my dad was a lover of poetry and he would read poems to me as a young boy, you know, as a kid, you know, in in lieu of bedtime stories. I mean, he also read bedtime stories, but he would also read poetry to me when I was a kid. So I think that has to have mattered at some point. I grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. My parents didn't allow us to have a television in our house. And of course, this was pre-internet. My primarily means of entertainment of of having fun as a kid was going to the library and checking out books from um, the public library. And so I would go there every weekend and check out 50 books. I had a 50 book limit and I was I was beside myself every weekend trying to figure out like which books I couldn't bring with me because I would have reached the 50 book limit. And then you know, I'd come back next Saturday and get 50 more books. So like language was a source of joy from an early, you know, from an early point in my life. And I think if you're going to be a poet, you have to find joy in language. Another way that I answer that is I talk about the summer before high school, 1993. I grew up playing hockey like a lot of young boys in the northern Middle West. And 
I thought that that's what I wanted to do for my entire life. You know, I was like, I'll just play hockey in high school and then I'll play hockey in college and then I'll be in the NHL. Obviously, I don't play hockey in the NHL, and that has a lot to do with the fact that A, I wasn't really that good looking back, and then two, I was too small, and then three, uh, the summer before high school, I broke my knee in playing hockey, and so I never tried out for the junior varsity hockey team, and I spent that summer on crutches or on my couch, and while I was on that couch, there was nothing to do except read books and I was pulling books off of my dad's bookshelf and a lot of those books were poetry books and I started reading them I started finding joy in them there were things happening there that interested me and so that summer I started trying to do myself what I was what I was reading so I think somewhere between somewhere between all of that is where I started open the door that led me here in some way or another it definitely sounds like there were a lot of pathways throughout your upbringing that led you to poetry. And now as an adult and in current day today, you are the newest poet laureate and you'll be serving a two-year term as a statewide emissary for poetry and creativity. In this role, what do you hope to accomplish throughout your time? The way that I think of what it is I want to do and what it is that I can do has has to do really with the amount of attention that this position carries with it, you know, like my emails, I get tons and tons of emails every day from people who want to talk with me for some reason out of, out of nowhere, it feels like, right? And there's all these people who are doing all of this work that I was never aware of. And I'm a poet, so like I have my ear to the ground more than most people do. And there's all these organizations in the state. There's all these individuals running reading series, putting on conferences, you know, study groups, poetry groups, so on and so forth. There's all these people doing this work that is wildly invisible, even to someone like me. And so I think first and foremost, what I can do is to kind of take the light that's being shined on me at this moment in my life and I can kind of divert that towards the people who are kind of in the trenches or the literary trenches uh, doing the really important work, I think, of making creative spaces available for people and in particular poets. You also brought with you today a poem that you have written and what is the poem called and when did you write it? It's a poem for my wife. It's a love poem. And it's the, the first poem that I finished as Poet Laureate. Um, but the poem is called, In Our Gardens Forests Are Prepared. In our gardens forests are prepared. Our being here together is the night-struck violet plucked from an edge-blue curve of air. The light does not absolve us. Because we named our children in the shadow of a failing garden, the white rose listens. I love the thousand shades of you. Every morning, our daughters sleep beyond themselves in day glow. The house grows quiet in their wake. To the place where you should be, I lash the ache of every brightness I've disfigured, the years that we have left. Bury with me the bottom half of fence posts in the yard. Pack the loose dirt harder. 
These days, I'm beginning to believe that I belong here. Because we chose to raise our children in the center of an empire, the low grass glistens in the west wind. At night, the sky edge finds us staring at our hands. It is easy to forget we left a world for this one. Oh, thank you, Nick. Why did you want to write that specific poem for your wife? I don't think that it's something that I sat down with the want or the intention to write. Like I, I, I start poems start from moments of curiosity. I mean, in some ways, this poem just started from like my mother gave us. My mother came to visit uh, last summer, and she brought us a white rose bush, and we were, you know, planting stuff in our backyard, and we planted a white rose and. I don't know why, but there was like something about that like struck me. I don't know what it was, but the poem started there. And then the poem goes off in a direction of its own. Like I try to get out of the way of the language as much as I can. Like I don't, I don't think of poetry as self-expression really, which I think is different than the way that it gets talked about most. Like I think of poems as an act of musical attention really like you start with a subject what uh, the poet richard hugo calls a triggering subject but then i follow the sounds of language and it leads me to what hugo calls the generated subject so like where the poem ends is not where the poem begins that poem started with a rose bush and it ends with thinking about my wife and I's decision to move back to the United States, right? To leave Thailand, which is where my wife and my eldest daughter are from, which is where my mother is from, right? In deciding to move back to the United States. And like, I think like a lot of immigrants, maybe you understand this, or maybe your, your family understands this too. Like you're, when you're an immigrant, you're trying to like, in the, in the practice of making your new home feel like home, you're trying to not forget the home you, you left. You're trying to assimilate and not assimilate at the same time. And you're trying to walk in two places simultaneously, trying to live in two cultures simultaneously. You know, at the end of this poem, I'm thinking about how my oldest daughter is like losing her tie, right? She moved here when she was five. She couldn't speak a word of English. And now she's losing, now she's losing her original language in one way, like there's something promising about that, right? Like we wanted her to learn English when she came here, right? We wanted her to fit in. We wanted her to feel like this was home, but there's also something sad in that too, right? I think all, all immigration narratives or experiences walk that, that double edge between, between what's lost and what's gained. Yeah, I definitely can empathize with that, with my family's own immigration story. Just there's this level or this feeling of unprocessed grief that's constant. And just like what you said, it's the that balancing act of, wow, this is really sad that what we know as home doesn't, like home as in like where my family immigrated from no longer exists because it's changing, it's different. But now we're in our new home, which is completely different. We've never experienced this before. So it's the, like what you said, a balancing act. And I sense that in your poem as well. And definitely poetry is 
a very beautiful way of expressing yourself. But sometimes, oftentimes, poetry is not something that seems accessible or can be intimidating to people who are uncertain of how to approach the form and the medium. But how do you hope to show that poetry can be for anyone? There are a few kind of competing thoughts in my head circling that question. One of the thoughts I have is that it matters and it's important and there's a reason why poetry is difficult and I think that there's real substantial and meaningful benefits to the difficulty of poetry. I think we live in a culture where everything feels like a version of something else, like everything is a copy of a copy of a copy. I think there are market incentives that cause culture to kind of constantly reproduce itself in a way that's economically viable. The consequence of that is is creating cultural products, whether they be music, movies, television, etc. Creating cultural products that are easily accessible, easily digestible, easily consumable to the most people possible because that produces the biggest economic outcome. I think the poems that are the most important to me resist that framework or they don't fit easily into that framework. They aren't marketable in that way by virtue of their difficulty. Poems require time and they require attention in a world where so little does anymore, it, it feels like. And so I think the importance of poetry is not in their accessibility or not in the extent to which they are for or can be for everyone, but I think the real value of poems exists in the way that they require us to relate to culture differently, that they, they force us to spend time and participate in what the poem eventually means, what the poem eventually becomes, right? Like poems have to be interpreted. I think if you get to an end of, the end of a poem and you know exactly what it was that you read and you know exactly what it means, then what you've gotten to the end of is something closer to like a romantic comedy. It's not a poem, right? Like poems have open endings instead of closed endings. And I think that openness or the experience of that openness is something that is increasingly rare. And Nick, of course, you are also a poet and you have your own work as well. Where do you draw your own inspiration to write? There's an essay called The Emergency by a critic named Andrew Duran. And in that essay, he asked the question, Something like, I'm paraphrasing here, what good is poetry in a time like this? And early on in that essay, he says something to the effect of where language fails, poetry begins. And so I think I draw my inspiration from that moment where language fails or where language falls short. What I mean by that, or what I think he means by that, and what I also mean by that is there is a lot in the world that doesn't make sense to me. There are a lot of things that I have questions about that I'm curious about. And when I try to wrestle with, or when I try to explore those curiosities with, let's just say like regular language, I oftentimes find that whatever explanations I'm able to arrive at don't capture 
the experience of of the thing that I'm that I'm feeling curiosity towards. For example, um, in 2015, my father passed away. I can't explain to you in a conversation with properly organized sentences what that experience was for me. I can tell you I was sad when my dad died, but that feels wildly reductive, right? It's it feels off. It feels untrue. I could try to describe, you know, like the the weight of his absence and so on and so forth, but it all feels wildly untrue. And I think that our lives are filled with moments like that. And I think when we find ourselves unable to place into regular language the experiences that matter most to us, I think that's where the poem takes over because the poem uses language differently. Creative speech is different than colloquial speech. Poetry is different than prose. And there are things that language does in a poem that still can't perfectly encapsulate some of those moments where language falls short, but I think it gets us closer. Or perhaps also the attempt to struggle in poetry with those places where language falls short gets us closer or deepens the connection that we have or deepens our relationship to those kind of really abstract but very real moments in a life. I think there's a reason why we turn to poetry at the end of lives, right? When someone dies, I think there's a reason why we turn to poetry at weddings, right? I think there's a, a reason why we turn to poetry when we pray. Those kinds of moments are the purview of the poem. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Congratulations again on being named the state's newest poet laureate. And I appreciate the work you do too. Like I said, there are all these people making space for other people out here in the state, and you're one of them, so thank you. Nicholas Gulig is Wisconsin's newest state poet laureate. He's also an associate professor at UW-Whitewater. He joined Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you listen to your podcast to hear all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow marks one year since a walk-in mental health clinic for children was opened at Children's Wisconsin Milwaukee Hospital campus. We'll speak with the clinic manager about the trends she's seen in child mental health over the last year and what the clinic hopes to do in the future. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.